there is nothing like a trial. I'm sure you guys have been through trials. You know this. There's nothing like a trial to show us all the things in life that are unimportant. And to show us who and what it is that we really trust in. Some of you guys are going through trials right now and you know what this is like. It is whittling away all the things that are unimportant at the end of the day. And it reveals to us who and what it is that we really come to trust in. A trial works to expose. And by God's grace, it always also works to refine Take relationships, for example. When the trial of relational difficulties come in, just imagine, let's say, you get into an argument, you get on each other's nerves, you sin against one another. If you feel like returning evil for evil, right, doesn't that work to expose your own lack of love? And it shows really fast whether or not you will be committed to love for God's sake or love for your own convenience. And if you are a Christian, that trial and our struggle in the midst of it, it helps actually to refine faith in God, who alone is worthy of our trust. And in every single circumstance, trials reveal exactly who and what we depend on, and they work to refine our dependence on that thing. That's our big idea today. Trials reveal exactly who and what we depend on, and they work to refine our dependence on that thing. So if you want to think of it in two, diff- two different words, just think ref- um, reveal and refine. Reveal and refine. That's our main idea from our passage today, and we are in 1 Samuel chapters 27 and 28. 1 Samuel chapters 27 and 28. Now, if you are joining us for the first time, we've been seeing actually this very point, kind of, kind of all, all the way since uh, chapter 21 in the book of 1 Samuel. As we're just walking through Scripture, First Samuel in particular. We're, we're seeing this process work its way out in the life of David, the man who is soon going to take over the kingship from a man named King Saul. First Samuel in general is about the transition from God's people living underneath his rule. Praise God, right? That's a good thing. Instead, though, they reject God, and, and then they want a king who can carry a sword and physically go into battle for them just like all the other nations. They want to be just like all the other nations, and that is sin. Now, David, he's going through some crazy trials. Crazy trials. King Saul wants him dead because Saul sees him as a threat to his power. Saul has already been told by God that the kingdom would be stripped from him on account of his disobedience. And then the kingdom would go to another. It would go to a man after God's own heart. Now, as readers, if you were to read through 1 Samuel, if if you've been joining us for this series, we know exactly who this next king will be. It's going to be David. But David has been catching the wrath of Saul. Saul, full of jealousy and rage, does everything in his power to keep the kingdom that God is stripping from him. In a crazed frenzy, He gives himself to hunting down David and then eliminating him as a threat. And this is David's trial. This brings us to point number one. This is David's trial. Saul wants to murder him. Point number one, David's trial. Saul wants to murder him. In previous chapters, we've seen David go through such highs and lows in his life as he faces trials. Just think of chapter 21. David there, he has to flee Saul. He has to leave all of his protection 
He has no provision. He has, he's without friendship. So he is all alone. Chapter 22, we see that even his family's life is in danger from Saul. In fact, everybody who helps David along the way are in danger of Saul. Chapter 23, by all accounts, there are times when David and his army is right about to be crushed and demolished by Saul and his greater army. Somehow, David narrowly escapes. Just imagine all of that stress and anxiety of having to go through this over and over again. And then think about all the spiritual lows, so to speak. With Saul throwing such hatred and violence his way, David, you know, we can imagine this. We can identify here. He's tempted to return evil for evil. He's tempted to take things into his own hand and then to take the throne by violence in chapter 24. And then in chapter 25, he's tempted to do violence again, this time against a man named Nabal who is evil and wicked. And so David wants to kill him. These records of David, by the way, uh, I think are really encouraging to me because here the king, the soon-to-be king, he's just a regular guy, isn't he? He's a regular guy who struggles to trust God. He is not perfect, but by God's grace, David comes to rest in the Lord. Though tempted, there's some evidence here, though tempted to violence, at the end of the day, he doesn't take matters into his own hands and kill Saul. Why is it? It's because Saul, the king of Israel, is God's anointed. Regardless of whatever wrath he's throwing David's way, that's God's anointed. And so David moves to honor the will of God. And then you think of Nabal, for example, though he's tempted there to return evil on evil, by God's grace, God sends him Abigail, who does what? She reasons to him. She ministers God's truth to him and godly wisdom to him. And then by God's grace, David backs down, leaving vengeance to the Lord and trusting himself to the care of the Lord. These trials refine his faith in the Lord. So he emerges, still a weak man, right? But a weak man who trusts in a strong God. With the Abigail account, though David is the one needing restraining in 26, praise God, we see him sort of learning. We see him sanctify, growing in holiness. He's the one who does the restraining. Do you guys remember that? He and another one of his men, they go into the camp of Saul. They take Saul's spear, but the man, his his fellow soldier, wants to kill him. And David has the opportunity to do the restraining, even though he's the one who needed restraining in the previous chapter. David's trials reveal the quality and it refines the strength of his faith. But you know what? David is about to head into another low. This brings us to our first chapter today in chapter 27. This is arguably the lowest chapter, the lowest point in David's life thus far. In terms of how this chapter fits into the rest of the book, it really works to set up everything that happens in the next chapters, chapters 28, 29, 30, 31. And you really see how this chapter, as we work through this, will at work to set it up. So here you see David and the Philistines, right? You look at chapters 28, uh, chapter 28. There you see Saul as he struggles with his own trial, which we're going to look at. In chapters 29, you see David and the Philistines. And then in the rest, let's take jump to 31, for example, you see Saul and the Philistines. We know Saul dies. Just as a spoiler there, Saul ends up dying, but God is with David, preserving him. But yet in the midst of this, here's David really struggling to trust in the Lord, it seems. You look there at verse 1. You see there, chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Let's stop right there for a moment. 
This actually tells you something about Saul, right? At least a little bit. He feels really that, that he cannot escape Saul or that Saul one day is going to kill him. This tells us something about where David is at spiritually. He's struggling. And in the chapter earlier, right, we see there that he actually trusts in the Lord. Look at 26 verse 10. 26 verse 10. Here he is. He's trusting the Lord. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into the battle and perish. And therefore, the Lord forbid that I should put out my own hand against the Lord's anointed. You see there, he's trusting in the Lord. But here in our chapter, again, he's discouraged. He's living life based on what he sees, what he experiences, as opposed to who God is and what he has done. Well, we see a solution there. Verse number one, there is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So the plan is clear. He's going to go into the land of the Philistines, that is Saul's enemies. And there Saul, finally, he's just going to back off, and then I'm going to survive. So David and his men, they flee to the land of the Philistines again. You guys remember last time? The last time he went to King Achish, if this is the same King Achish, which I think it is. The last time he went down to the land of the Philistines, he had to, he felt the need to, actually pretend like he was crazy. Because he knew that, right, he's the giant killer going into the land of the giant, Goliath, that is the Philistines. And so here, right, he pretend, or there, he had to pretend like he was crazy. He was clawing at, you know, the city's walls. He was letting spit dribble down his beard. And so Achish is like, ah, this guy's not a threat. It's not a big deal. Like, how many more crazy men do I need in my kingdom? Like, just leave him alone. So here, you can imagine King Achish seeing him again. I assume the king knew when he saw him that he got played last time. But nevertheless, David actually finds favor in the king's eyes. You look there at verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag had belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now you might wonder why King Achish looks favorably on David. It's because Achish thinks that they have a mutual enemy, right, in Saul and the Israelites. So right now there's three different parties. You got Achish and the Philistines. You got who? We got David and his 600 men and actually all of their families, it says there in uh, the early verses of chapter 27. And then you got Saul and then his kingdom. So Achish thinks that if I partner with David and his men, then all of a sudden we are a stronger force to rally against Israel. Right? So, so David and his men are basically seen to be like mercenaries. They are useful for Achish because when the Philistines go against Saul and Israel, the thought is that David and his men are going to help, uh, help the Philistines fight Saul. Now we see some of the sentiment. Look there in verse 12. And Achish trusted David. We're going to see why, but there you see the sentiment there. Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. And then you look in 28 verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. So you see there that there is an apparent 
there is an apparent cooperation. Just imagine the pickle that David is in here. Somehow he needs to keep the favor of the Philistines and the Philistine king. But of course, his loyalties as God's servant are with Israel. Let's see what David does in 8 to 12. Look at verse 8 to 27. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerizites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as shore to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and would come to Achish. And the reason why he's bringing all this stuff out is because he has to feed his 600 men and all their families. Verse 10, when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, and pay attention to this, against the Negev of Judah, that is the Israelites, or against the Negev of the Jeramelites, or against the Negev of the Canaanites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring good news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Now, you see what he does there. He raids other tribes. He tells Achish, though, that he's raiding his own people, the Israelites. And then to make sure Achish didn't find out, he destroys the entire town, leaving neither man nor woman alive. I'll comment on that soon. But for now, you see his strategy, right? And it works, right? Achish is very proud of himself. He's thinking, I got an ally in David. We're going to smash Israel and David, and his men will be mine. Now, these events bring up some interesting questions. Are his actions even ethical in deceiving Achish, in destroying the cities that he raided, man and woman? And then also, if you notice, there early, in the early verses there, uh, you look there at verse 2. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achis, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. And David lived with Achis and Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives. So we might as well tackle that one. It's a good time to look at that, polygamy. Um, I think that this account actually shades David char- David's character a bit. It shades David's character a bit, but there aren't clear answers. There are not clear answers. The passage doesn't come out and explicitly say anything judging his actions there on all the three things that I just mentioned. It doesn't. And that's something that we just have to to acknowledge. I mean, that's not even the point, right? The point is to show the difficult situation he's in that Saul had put him in. There's like a battle between these kingdoms, so to speak. So because the author doesn't comment, we need to think all the more carefully about each and every single one of these points regarding David's deception, regarding David's deception of Achish. So I wonder, right, in trying to think carefully, I wonder, was deception acceptable? Was deception acceptable? Was it even practiced amongst kings and kingdoms and warring spies? Is that normal? Was it normal among the leaders of warring kingdoms to do these types of things? And then in times of war, and then is it, is it even a time of war? Right? These are all questions that we need to be asking here about why he does what he does. Just no clear answers, just some questions that I have. Regarding David destroying the inhabitants. Now, we know that at times, God did call his people to carry out this kind, this particular kind of judgment against certain people. 
those people who stood against God and his people. We know that from, from earlier, from an earlier chapter in 1 Samuel, right? God had told Saul to judge the Amalekites, for example, right? To bring divine justice upon them for something that they had done to God and his people earlier in the Exodus. We know that God does, in fact, do that, had done that at certain times. But here, what's interesting, the official language of that kind of divine judgment is not found. Now, could God have told him to do that and it's just not recorded? And then we have to remember that this does not seem to be, or that this does seem, at least in my opinion, to be like war. They are on the southern border of Israel. That's where Ziklag is. This area was regularly attacked, and it was open to raids by, you know, these marauders, particularly the Amalekites. Um, but under these, at this point in time, it's probably uninhabited, or maybe the Philistines are ruling over that. They pushed Israel out. Some questions we have, right? Regarding David's two wives and polygamy in general. Polygamy, we have to know, is certainly not God's design and was not God's design in the beginning with Adam and Eve. So there we have to consider, right? Consider, right? God's deliberate design at the beginning. It was between Adam and Eve. God deliberately designed marriage to be between one man and one woman in a covenant for as long as they would live. God joined the two of them together in one flesh. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus actually reaffirms this divine intention that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, and they are to be joined together in one flesh. We can look at Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10. Similarly, Paul then go on, goes on to endorse this same union that Jesus did as well and affirms the divine, deliberate creation of marriage between a man and a woman. So when we read of people in the Old Testament who did end up taking more than one wife, which was, which was actually very quite, it was really rare. The examples are few and far between. Um, I think it's helpful to see polygamy as something that God tolerates but does not prescribe. It does not tolerate, or sorry, God does tolerate but it does not prescribe. Polygamy is nowhere in Scripture by God's prescription, but in the Old Testament law, it's actually by toleration. It's where the people's heart already was. That's already what was going on in the culture. And so God tolerates that and actually regulates it for the benefit of, let's say, the second wife. He regulates it. He's actually saying, look, I want you to. You are my people. That, I recognize your heart is already far away. I recognize you've already done these types of things. But look at, look at what I want you to do. If, you, if there is a second wife, treat her with dignity and respect. There's a difference there. You see, toleration versus prescription versus encouragement. So in the Old Testament law, we do see here toleration. But in Scripture, it is nowhere prescribed. Think about divorce, for example, right? Divorce was certainly not according to God's original design. It is not the way it was in the beginning, Jesus says. But God nevertheless tolerates it, right? That's why Moses, Jesus says, gives certificates of divorce. It's because, he says, their hearts were so far away already. And so Moses, therefore, uh, tolerates it and issues these certificates of divorce. It's because it was on account of the hardness of the people's hearts, Christ says. In a similar way, not quite one-to-one, -one, but in a similar way, this can be applied, I think, to the taking of more than one wife in the Old Testament. Once again, our account is not encouraging polygamy. 
God, and God is definitely not prescribing it, but in the Old Testament, there is an aspect of tolerating such behavior on account of the hardness of people's hearts. It is nevertheless clear God's deliberate design is that marriage should be between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. They are to be one flesh, and this is affirmed by Jesus and other writers in the New Testament. Okay, so that's some of the ethical questions in regards to those things um, that we need to consider. But about David going to live among the Philistines, you can imagine being forced out of your hometown, forced to leave family, You can imagine all of the potential fear and anxiety that would go on in your own hearts and your own souls. And then on top of that, he has the weight and responsibility of needing to care for these 600 men and all of their families. But as has already been made clear from the previous chapters, the Lord is with him, right? We've been seeing how the trials have been refining his faith, revealing his faith, refining it, making it even even stronger, Just think of the reminders that he had in the last few chapters, right? God had judged Nabal, the evil man, struck him dead. And that strengthens his faith. And then then in the chapter where David leads a small mission into the very camp of Saul, taking a spear in an effort to prove prove to Saul that he means no harm, how does he succeed? Was it because David is so incredibly stealthy? You look at 26, 12, and we see Scripture giving us a reason. The second half of chapter, chapter uh, 26, verse 12. No man saw it, that is David and his men, or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. Why? Because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. And so that works to strengthen his faith in God, right? Now, we are all like David in that our trust in God is not always so strong, right? And trials reveal that. The trial that you're going through, maybe right now, is actually working to reveal that. And if you're a Christian, thank God, is actually working to refine our faith in God. That's what James 1 says trials are for. Did you notice there that that, uh, there is a process going on with David's growth in holiness or his growth in sanctification? And there's also a process going on with you, Christian, and your sanctification and growth in holiness. This sanctification or growth in holiness is not a one-and-done deal like salvation is, right? Our justification is, in fact, a one-and-done deal. Christ dies on the cross. And if you have repented of your sin and believed, you are justified, declared righteous before God's sight, once and for all. But in sanctification, it's not quite like that. It's a process. It is progressive. Listen to what our statement of faith says here at First Baptist Church. We believe that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of His holiness. That it is a progressive work. So you get this idea that it's going to continue moving on. That it is begun in regeneration, that is when you are born again. And that it is carried on, think process, in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and comforter in the continual use of the appointed means. That is, how is it that we grow? Well, the, the, the continual use of what God has appointed. That is, the Word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. So the fact that sanctification is a process and that it is progressive means that it's going to go on all the way until the end of your life, Christian, your earthly life. And that should shape the way that you look at your earthly life. We've got to be in this, Christian, for the long haul. 
And if we don't, if we don't have that attitude, we are bound to stumble and fall big time and maybe even struggle to give up entirely. Can you imagine, Christian, going into a marathon race wrongly thinking that you arrive at the destination after one mile? And then you come to realize after that one mile, you know, you're celebrating, jumping up after that one mile. And then somebody tells you there's another mile right in front of you. Not only that, though, but another 24 in addition to that. You can imagine wrongly concluding and expecting, or can you imagine wrongly concluding and expecting that you're actually done after each and every single mile, needing to be reminded because you forgot that, no, it actually lasts all the way until the end for the Christian race, that is, until death. In talking to Christians in general, I think people think that way about their sins in relation to the Christian life. Their sins in relation to the Christian life. We sometimes go into the Christian life thinking, Okay, well, I wrestle with lust, for example. And after mile one of the Christian life, life I'm going to be done with that entirely. That's going to be behind me for me to never struggle with again for the rest of my Christian life. And then in mile two, I advance to go and conquer a different sin entirely. That one we're going to call, let's say, not telling lies and being honest. And then in mile three, I'm going to work on my anger. And then in mile four, I'm going, to re- I'm going to wrestle with not stealing from other people and so on and so on and so on. I mean, you can understand why people might think this way. Maybe people make their race of faith all about conquering sin because of their guilt. Because they genuinely feel so bad about what they do or have done in the past. To that person being a Christian... Being a Christian is ultimately about what they do and what they don't do. It is first and foremost about not doing or doing certain things. Another reason maybe why we get kind of this mentality gets seeped into the Christian life is maybe we're just simply fueled by self-righteousness. Maybe when we genuinely become a Christian, we automatically lay out for ourselves um, exactly what we want to do. And yes, the sin that I struggle with here, I'm just going to get rid of that in mile number one. And then I move on to the next one. Maybe that's fueled by our own self-righteousness. Maybe that's fueled by pride, our desire to be perfect, which only Jesus is. Our friends, you see, that that's not how it works. That's the perfectionism mentality actually seeping in into the way in which we live and look at our Christian life, where it's all about becoming more and more perfect as if one could constitutionally more and more perfect as if we could here and now like we work on this thing and then we boop we we gain a little level of perfection and then we move on to the next one and then you know we continue gaining that's not how it works that christian let me ask you a question that christian has what as the object of their affection i think it's perfection That Christian has what as the object of their attention? It's sins that need to be conquered. And Christ, where is he? He just so happens to help you, right? I hope you see that that is a skewed understanding of the Christian faith. The grand object of the Christian's attention is actually, strangely enough, it might sound to us, is actually not sins that need conquering in some perfectionistic way but it should be Christ who has already conquered sin and death and Satan for you, Christian. So if you've already repented of your sin and believed on Christ, 
you have already been justified by God's grace. That is, you stand before the eyes of God, righteous, clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. And now in your race of faith, Christ desires you trust him more and more and more. And then out of that, fight for the faith. Christ is the righteous one that we need because we are, in fact, all unrighteous as we, from the beginning, have sinned against our Creator, earned for ourselves just condemnation. So we need Christ, the righteous one. And then in His death on the cross, He bore the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. And then He got up from the dead three days later. He is the one that freed us from the tyranny and the power of sin in His defeat of Satan, sin, and death. On the cross, he bore the punishment that we deserved so that we would be reconciled to him and forgiven our sin. Now, friends, Christians, he has already freed us from sin's power. That's the way that Romans speaks of this, the way that Paul speaks of this. He frees us from the tyranny of sin. According to the new covenant, he's already given us new hearts and new affections by his spirit. And he's given us new strength in which we are to fight. And friends, from that salvation that God has given us in His love and in His grace in Jesus, in the freedom that we already have in Jesus Christ, then we fight the fight of faith in His strength, learning to love Him and trust Him all the more as we fight in this life. I'm going to speak more about how one does that later on. But I think this is what is reflected in David in the Old Testament. Amidst his own difficult trials, where does he draw strength from? Though he struggles to trust right in his own power, rely on his own wisdom, and kill people. Instead, though, he trusts in God and his promises, God and his care, God and his faithfulness, God and his deliverance. That's David's trial. Saul wants to kill him. This is, and you see that he trusts in Christ, he trusts in God, right? But this is certainly not what Saul does. This is certainly not what Saul does. And his trials show him what he relies on and what he is really after. And it is not God. It is not God. He is not really after God. This is point number two, Saul's trials. Point number two, Saul's trials. While David fears Saul, Saul fears the Philistines. It says there in verse four of, uh, well, let's just go ahead and look at 28.3, 28.3. Now, Samuel had died. Samuel, he was a prophet of God, if you're new to the story. He was a prophet of God, the man of God in godless times. Now, Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put out the mediums and necromancers out of the land. That is, those who call up the dead or speak for the dead. He's going to come back to why um, that's important here. The Philistines assembled and camped and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. Now, what's fascinating is that Mount Gilboa is a mountain, obviously, Mount Gilboa. And he can look over and see exactly what the Philistines are doing. And there are hundreds and thousands, it says, thousands of uh, the Philistines' army walking through the land of Judah. Look there, verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. He's afraid he's going to die, plain and simple. And if he dies, well, there goes all of his power and there goes his kingdom. So while David's trials revealed the presence of faith and worked to refine his faith in God, Saul's trial reveals the absence of faith. They expose that he doesn't have any desire 
after the Lord. You look at what Saul's solution was in all that fear. You guys know what it's like to struggle with fear, right? Your anxiety. You know what it's like to seek out something for help. What happens to Saul? Verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. It's interesting here. He, he actually seeks out the Lord. Dreams. You can think of Jacob having his dreams. It's how God communicated in the Old Testament at times. Urim, the Urim is obviously a term that we don't use today, but it's part of the priest's breastplate, which was used to inquire of the word of the Lord. We don't know exactly how it was used, but nevertheless, it was used to seek the Lord's will. And prophets, right? This is God's mouthpiece to his people. The main point, though, there, God does not answer. Now, you might think that my comment about Saul is not charitable, right? I said that there's no desire in Saul at all. How can you say that he is not after God? Because he actually seeks after God. To that, I would say, well, you are right. He does seek after God. But friends, not at all with a heart that really seeks to honor God. Not at all with a heart that really seeks to live underneath the lordship of God, seeking God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we know? You look there at verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. You see there what's going on. God is just one of the many sources he decides to use to get what he wants. He's willing to inquire of pagan spiritualists, a medium who speaks for the dead, calls up the dead. And you get this, you get this, uh, this desperation aspect from the passage here, right? He's inquiring of the Lord, but God doesn't answer him. Then he goes, find me some pagan spiritualist who I can then inquire of. Just give me something to put my soul at ease. His dismissal and disregard of God is present there. And it gets worked out in the rest of the chapter. You look at 8 to 25. Let's go ahead and look there. 8 to 25. So Saul disguised himself because it's against the law of God to seek after mediums. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. At this point in time, he actually has to go kind of around or even maybe even through his enemies here to get to the medium. He and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. 
For the Lord has torn the kingdom out from your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistine. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my own hand and listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with a woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. This is an interesting account. We have mediums. We have necromancy. That is speaking on behalf of the dead and conjuring up the dead. There are a whole host of questions that come from this account. For example... Did diviners, like this woman, actually have the power to bring up the dead? Because it sure seems like they think it's actually Samuel. But then, why is she scared when she sees Samuel? Apparently, this was not her normal seance. There's something unique where she actually screams when she sees this thing. Maybe this was a demonic deception. One commentator asks, Asking questions of the text, right? If Samuel was called up, was this an exception of what God normally allows or sanctions? And if it really is Samuel, why does he bother answering Samuel at all? Thereby satisfying Saul's lust for knowledge of the future by whatever means. Even means that were specifically condemned in Israel by God. Frankly, let me just say, we don't have much data on the subject of seances. As Christians, we want to do theology. We do theology by looking at the Word of God. We're going to look at passages that deal with certain subjects. So if we were to flip through all the passages about seances, conjuring up the dead, speaking for that, you're just not going to find many things. And so you can't really develop a full theology of uh, seances and mediums and necromancy. We know that they were, in fact, forbidden in Israel according to God's law, but, get this, not because they were ineffective, right? God doesn't say, don't do it because it's not going to work. They are forbidden in Israel by God because they were evil. And God did not want His people to imbibe in pagan spirituality. The Bible says that there really is a dark power and evil in the world. We also know that God is actually final authority over these things. He is in control of it. And it is no match for God. The evil realm here can't even stop God from bringing about his will. He even uses this appearance to speak what he wants Saul to know. Regardless of what we don't know about the situation, Here's what we do know regarding how this account fits into the bigger picture of the book. 
Something that God has been teaching us from the beginning of 1 Samuel is that he exalts the humble, and then he brings down the proud. We saw that in the Song of Hannah. Just go over to 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's worth turning to, so go over to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and uh, look at verse 6. You see that this, this is, uh, Hannah's song here begins the whole entire book, basically, And you see what she sings about here. The Lord kills and brings to life. uh, He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. That's interesting, right? Because here is Saul, the proud the ruler of the land that God is bringing down to Sheol. We know that in chapter 31. He dies. The high is brought low. And then you have little David, the shepherd boy, smaller than all of his other brothers, not naturally uh, attractive in such a way where he's the obvious choice to be king. It's he that the Lord is raising up. And how fascinating is it here that the Lord makes alive in such a way where somehow something's appearing. Let's just say Samuel is appearing Uh, out of the dead, the realm of Sheol, and speaking to the proud. It's fascinating, right? Then you look over to 2 Samuel. Turn over to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 1.25. You look, this is after Saul dies, and what effectively begins 2 Samuel? It's David's song here of lament. He laments. He is, in fact, saddened that God's uh, anointed in Saul never cared about God to begin with and has thus died by God's judgment. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, we have an example of God bringing down and God raising up. So that's basically all that I have to say about necromancy and seances. But when it comes to Saul, when it comes to Saul, there's so many ironies in the passage that prove Saul's disregard for God. So many ironies that prove Saul's disregard for God. And this trial reveals exactly who he trusts in, and it is not God. The first irony, the first irony here. Saul previously rejected God and Samuel, and now all of a sudden he wants God and Samuel really fast. In his desire for God to, or is his desire for God to rule and for God's will to be obeyed? Does he want to submit to the Lord's will? As it is in heaven, so it be done on earth. Absolutely not. God was the one who told him that the kingdom would be torn from him for his disobedience. This is echoed in verses 17 to 18 in what Samuel says. God was the one who gave him a specific divine command in 1 Samuel chapter 15 to judge the Amalekites, to carry out God's will. But God, or but Saul, chose to do what he thought best. Another example. Even though he knew that the Lord was with David, he had absolutely no problem making David his enemy and tries to kill him. So what do we conclude from this first irony? Well, Saul doesn't want God to be Lord. He only wants God insofar as God will give him what he wants. Unfortunately, this sounds like many 
uh, non-Christians or even some Christians uh, how they view Christianity and God. God is useful only insofar as he gives us things. But friends, you look at Saul and you see that that is not commended here. That is wrong. Saul does not care about God as if uh, God should only be cared for if he gives us what we want. The second irony. Second irony. Saul depends on the pagans he previously banished. Saul depends on the pagans that he previously banished. You look at 28.3, 28.3. You see there the the last half of the verse, Saul had put out the mediums and necromancers out of the land. Isn't that fascinating? So on one hand, Saul actually can obey the law. According to Deuteronomy 18, God says, "There there shall not be among you mediums and necromancers. Gone. So he obeys on one point, but doesn't mind disobeying at another. Leviticus 19, 30. There God says, do not seek them out. That is the mediums and necromancers. I mean, this is just like Saul, if you've been with us, First Samuel. He has no problem claiming to have obeyed, even though he chooses not to obey all the way. What do we conclude? At a foundational level, he disregards God's word because he would rather opt for his own He would rather opt for his own will and word to be done. Third irony, he promises the the medium pardon in in the Lord's name. Can you imagine just doing that? Approving of something the Lord detests in the Lord's name. Even though God was against mediums and necromancers, but yet he says there will be no judgment in the Lord's name. He invokes the name of the Lord whenever is convenient for himself. We've seen this before. He takes oaths in the name of the Lord. He calls down curses in the name of the Lord, all the while going against the Lord. Can you imagine the hubris of Saul, who on one hand speaks for the Lord, but doesn't care a lick to acknowledge him as the Lord? What do we conclude? Well, once again, it shows that at a foundational level, level, he overrules God's word because he thinks his is better. He overrules God's word because he thinks his is better. So when it comes to him seeking the Lord, receiving wisdom from God, we see what he is after. He's after words that suit his will. Did you notice what Samuel says there? He doesn't say anything new about the kingdom. You look there at verse 18. He doesn't tell him anything new. Can you imagine that there? Samuel, so, uh, Saul so desperately wants someone to tell him something that he wants to hear that the kingdom will be okay and that, no, he really will remain king. He calls this, somehow this evil spiritist calls up what, what may, might be Samuel. And then Samuel just tells him exactly the same thing that he always has been. God overrules that situation. God's word is communicated just as was communicated to him before. So he is after words that suit his own will. The kingdom will not remain in his hand. But then he adds something new. If you look there at verse 19, he adds something new. What does he say there? Moreover, the Lord will, will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me basically in death in Sheol. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. The situation of facing the great army of the Philistines reveals what he depended on himself and exposes it exposes his absolute lack of faith in god 
To apply this to our own situation, we've been talking about how trials test the presence or absence of faith in God. For Saul, there is no true faith. Saul went with whatever worked. The Lord or medium, who really cares? It doesn't really matter. From this, we should actually be examining our own lives. Trials reveal so quickly the heart of the matter, don't they? More accurately, trials reveal our own hearts in the matter. Christian, you know what I'm talking about. When you need help, if you are in need of help right now, where do you go? Or to whom do you go? So just imagine if the situation that you're going through is just so unbearable, where do you go? Chances are you have been tempted to abandon God and to follow something or someone else. I mean, haven't you in some situation, in some trial, haven't you concluded in the moment that the world's wisdom might be better than the Lord's? I mean, sure, you might not set your hope. You might not bank all of your life and your wisdom on necromancers and mediums. But how about in yourself? You are going to do life yourself because no one, including God, will really take care of me, you say. Or maybe it's not yourself. Maybe what you fear is the loss of security and money. And so you know that you can't do anything. So you rely on the stock market. You might not be relying on the dead to speak, but what about your retirement portfolio or your equity and whatever you have it in? You know, Christian, that there are a lot of people who only want the benefits they think come with Christ without really wanting Christ himself, without really wanting all glory in every single situation, no matter how difficult, to go to Jesus Christ. That's a bit like Saul, happy to seek God, happy to call upon his prophets, but only when he wants God to validate his desires, as if Saul is the true king. Friends, if you're visiting with us today and you call yourself a Christian, I hope that's not you. And you know, friends, how you can fight. You know how you can fight if you're a Christian. You know how you fight so that that would not be you? We've been talking about how trials work in such a way to reveal the quality of faith. Again, it also helps to refine faith. Here are some practical examples. How does it work to refine faith and what can we do about it? How can we actually fight so that we aren't like Saul? Let's say you can't get the job you want. Let's say, practical example, you can't get the job you want and you feel tempted to turn your back on God because you can't get that job you love. Well, chances are, friends, you probably love that job more than God. You probably love God for what He can do for you more than you love God for God Himself and what He desires for you. In that moment, friend, you realize you have an opportunity to repent. We're talking about how we can fight, right? Here's number one, right? We have the opportunity to repent of your idolization of that job, your love for that job or whatever else comes with that job, whether it be security or prestige or self-respect or whatever it is. You have the opportunity not only to repent, but then to go on and see and believe how Christ and trusting on Him for all of life is better than any particular job and all that could potentially come with it. Here's another example. Are you tempted to abandon God because of the pleasures of the world? 
whatever that may be, might be to you, whether it be sex outside of God's design, whether it be drugs so you can check out of the difficult circumstances you're in, whether it be alcohol or whatever harder drug you're thinking of. Friends, you realize that in that moment, in that difficulty of battling against the pleasures of the world, you have the opportunity to repent of idolizing your own desires and idolizing your own will as you are tempted to live according to how you see fit as if you were God. Friends, you have the opportunity to repent and then turning to the word of God in dependence upon the spirit, you have the opportunity to learn and believe, friends, that Christ is better. That living under Christ's love and his law that trusting him, even when we don't understand our struggle, is better than living according to our own law, right? Another example, if, you're te- if you've been tempted to forget God and abandon him in effort to live before the eyes of man, because they give me what I want, they give me that immediate satisfaction, they give me immediate identity, that I am someone special in their eyes because I sell a whole lot of junk, or I can do a whole lot of good, bring the company a whole lot of money. Friends, if you are tempted to neglect God because other people give you that attention, you're working so hard to impress others as opposed to working hard to live underneath the eyes of God, you have the opportunity to repent. Repent of placing man in the position of God. Because man is not the one we live for, but God is the one we live for. Not only that, though, but we have an opportunity to not only repent, but then to go on and believe, according to the word of God, in dependence upon the Spirit, that God is sovereign and that He alone can save. And that living before His eyes and doing what He loves is what is right and what is good. Friends, that's how you fight. You repent and you believe every single day, every single time you sin. Remember how we talked about how sanctification is a lifelong process? We realize that repenting and believing is as well. Now, of course, there is a time uh, when one is saved and you repent and believe for the very first time where uh, you come to behold Christ as the Lord and Savior of the world and there you turn from your sins and you believe on Him. You turn away from whatever you worship and you turn to God for the very first time, right? That's when you are saved, when you are converted, Of course, behind that is the Spirit of God working, giving you the new birth. When it comes to sanctification, repentance and faith need to be exercised for your entire life, every time you sin. The wonderful thing is that the process of repenting and believing implies that you come to see Christ more clearly and what He means for your life in that very moment, every single time you sin, every single day. At every single moment when you're tempted to sin, God has something for you to enter more deeply into, namely, God's love for you in Jesus and why He is better for you than all the sin the world has to offer for you. Isn't that exciting? Certainly we sin. And praise God, He calls us to turn from our sin, not just to not doing something, but not doing something because God is right there and we are in His care. And He desires something a million, a billion times better than what this world has to offer. Praise God, whether it be fleeing drugs, fleeing fleeing from the lust of the flesh, fleeing from seeking security here and everything that this, this world has to offer. All of those things we put away so that we might enter more deeply into the love of Christ. That's how you fight, Christian. In that trial, when we as Christians are turning to Christ and resting in Him, 
the trial ends up producing a stronger faith. If you want to read something about this, I think uh, one book, for example, is excellent. It's called Future Grace by John Piper. It talks about how there is grace to come guaranteed, and we get the chance to, to lean into that grace and depend upon it as we live out the Christian life. That is Future Grace by John Piper. To conclude, the Christian life is not primarily about what one does or does not do, though it certainly does have to do about that. God does, in fact, tell us what to do and not to do. But all of that flows out of God's grace and His love for us in Christ. The Christian life, ultimately, who should be in our view primarily? It should be Christ and the work of salvation that He has accomplished. If you are exploring Christianity, you too can know this relationship with Jesus Christ. You can see how he is all satisfying in every single situation. He, well, you can see why he is worthy of being trusted and worthy of even submitting your whole entire life to as Jesus is the Lord and Savior. And friends, he calls you to turn from your sins and believe on him. And he says, you will be saved. You'll know reconciliation with God, your creator, forgiveness of your sins. And you come to know and enter more into why Christ is all satisfying, the good shepherd who cares for his people. That is actually where David ends up, in the care of the Lord. Remember, this chapter sets the stage to prove to us, it sets the stage to prove to us, chapters 27, 28, that the Lord is, in fact, with David, and that he can have confidence in the Lord who cares for him. We know that it goes well for David. Right now, right at the end of... uh, at the, the beginning of 28, he kind of leaves us yet in another pickle. David is wondering, probably, how is it that I keep the, uh, the trust of the Philistines, but yet my loyalties are with Israel? It leaves us kind of hanging. Well, we get the answer in 29 as the author picks up that part of the story there. But we know it goes well for David. And with Saul, who is against God? Well, God is against him. At the end of this chapter, isn't it unique where Saul ends up? Saul is left obeying not God but this medium the medium says obey me you look there at verses 21 and 22 and the woman came to Saul and when she saw that he was terrified she said to him you have a medium comforting the king of Israel behold your servant has obeyed you I have taken my life into my hand and have listened to you to what you have said to me now therefore you also obey your servant it's like he's sharing his last meal before his death. She, she has this fattened calf. She slaughters it, prepares a feast for this king. And what does it say there at the end? Very end of the chapter. Then they rose and went away that night. That's a foreboding conclusion there. So different than, than uh, David, if you remember that. Abigail prepares a feast and goes to David, intercepts him on the way, Right? She ministers divine comfort to him with the word of God and the truths of God. David listens, submits, and thanks God for grace. As Abigail keeps him from sin. Here, this woman, this woman is calling Saul to obey her. He arrives exactly where he intended, left with the wisdom of the world, going away into the night. While Saul's trial revealed that he had no faith, David's trial revealed true faith and even worked to produce a stronger faith. And no matter what you are going through, Christian, God desires to strengthen your faith in a strong God, in your strong God. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. Even in our circumstances, our trials, we know, Lord, that you are faithful in producing, in strengthening, in refining our faith. We know that you are so faithful in wanting to reveal to us more of who you are, just as David comes to know more of who you are, just as he comes to know that he is in the care of the Lord, that his life is in, in the bundle of the living. So, Lord, we know that trials are used in the same way in our own lives. Lord, we pray that though certain trials uh, we certainly don't want, and we pray that they would end, we pray that we would get out of them, but at the same time, Lord, we pray that we would pray the ultimate things. We pray, Lord, that we would come to see you more. We pray, Lord, that you would be all satisfying to us. And even in our struggle, other people would come to see that you are worth trusting in, that you are worthy of all of our hope, so much more worthy than anything the world has to offer. Lord, we pray that even in the ways that people are struggling here right now, the members of First Baptist Church, we pray, Lord, that the ways in which they struggle would so testify to everybody around them that even though life is hard and difficult, full of struggles and death as a consequence of sin and full of sin, we pray, Lord, that the ways in which we as First Baptists struggle would testify to the world that our answer is in you and not in, finally, a change of circumstance. Lord, we know that you are making all things new. We know, Lord, that the world itself groans in this direction for the new creation to happen. We know that our own bodies groan in such ways as we are broken down and as we sin in our bodies. But Lord, we pray that you would, in fact, return, that you would come quickly and that you would work your marvelous plans, that you would bring them all to fulfillment. We pray, God, that as you desire us to be patient and to trust in you and your timing, Lord God, we pray that you would grant us perseverance, grant us hope that we might behold you and the beauties of the King, as your scripture says. Refine our faith, we pray, so that it would be seen to be beautiful and all the more the object of our faith, that is Jesus Christ, would be all the more beautiful in our own eyes and in the eyes of those who watch us even suffer at times. In your name we pray, amen.